morning, Southbridge. I'm glad that you're here today. I was thinking yesterday specifically how courageous and bold some of you are to come to church um, when you don't know who you're going to sit by. And I know that can sound silly as far as courageous and boldness. Think about Daniel and the lion's den and things along those lines. But it really is bold. Some of you um, come, whether you're single or your family members are out of town or you decide to check out a church and maybe you're here with a spouse or a friend or whoever, but you don't know anybody else at church. And I just want to say thanks for coming. Um, we think that you're bold and courageous that you do that. And I'll say to our church body, um, look out for people that look like they don't know anybody today. And uh, wouldn't it be something if we were the friendliest church in the triangle, not because we want anyone else to be mean, but because we are so friendly, or maybe the friendliest church in the world. Wouldn't that be, let's shoot for the stars, forget the triangle, we're going for the world. Friendliest, friendlier than any church in China, okay? Those underground churches are meeting together and loving on each other, that we'd be so friendly that we would uh, be that way. So hopefully um, you'll take that into consideration as you leave here today, and as you're just looking around, seeing who's here, thinking about needs. And uh, there's lots of information about what's happening in our church in your worship program. You'll see even Celebrate Recovery is meeting this Thursday night. They've got a dinner they're going to do. It's a real casual time. If you've ever thought about checking them out, this would be a great time. Check them out Thursday night, 7 o'clock. You'll see information about that on our website, and you can look in our worship program about a lot of stuff that's taking place. But today we're continuing our series we've been doing called Trending Now. In this series, uh, we've been talking about questions that you have, questions that you would ask God or that your neighbors would ask God. And today, uh, we come on a difficult topic. Um, we come up to questions you've asked about the topic of homosexuality. And so I'll say to you, if you've got little ones in here today, today, like a couple weeks ago when we talked about sexuality, um, we'll have some sexual content in the message. If you'd like to use our Bridge Kids Ministry, they're zero through fifth grade, and you can head down uh, the other hallway that we were in here today, and you can do that in just a moment when I pray if you'd like to slide out of here. Um, but I also want to say this uh, to you as a, a church family. I've had a hard time uh, with this message and coming, one, just what passage to even talk about with some of the questions that you asked, and then also uh, thinking about who it is that will hear these words. And so I'm um, trying to pastor you as a church and shepherd and lead through the teaching. Uh, one of the things that I think about is I know that we're constantly bombarded by all kinds of messages from culture that sometimes sound really good that are really opposite of the Bible. And so I want to, part of me wants to equip you and get you ready to intellectually engage in that conversation that happens with our culture. And then I also realize there are people that are hurting and struggling to have to do with this topic. Some people with uh, same-sex attraction, and no one knows. Your spouse doesn't know, your friends don't know, your coworkers don't know, and you need to experience healing, and you need to have a message of hope. And so you don't need to be beat up. And there are some of you, when we talk about this very topic, um, it's very personal for you, because maybe it's you, or maybe it's a cousin, a friend, a partner, friend, spouse, whatever business, whatever relationship that's out there that you think of when we talk about these words, and it's real people, and you think... If I do what God says, then I'm rejecting that person. I'm hating that person. And so when I think about how to approach this, um, I want to both equip some, bring healing for others, and I don't know how that can happen, except God has to do it. And so I'm going to just pray as we get started this morning that God would speak, that God would do something that, that he does. He shows up. He's really still active here today, and um, that he would meet each one of us where we're at today. So let's pray. Father. I humbly come before you and ask you to teach us today from your word. I pray that you would give me words, you delete words you don't want me to say. Maybe I've prepared or planned or read or whatever. And you would speak words that you want spoken, words that will bring healing, words that will speak truth in grace, words that will bring equipping. I pray for our believers, I pray specifically for our believers that are newer to the Bible. Um, that you would equip with your word and show your word, all of it, to be useful for everything, correcting and teaching and, and encouraging and exhorting and doing all the things it does and pierce our hearts. And Father, for those who need conviction, bring conviction. For those who need healing, bring healing. For those who need truth, bring truth. Please, God, do all those things somehow supernaturally through this time we share together. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, my wife and I uh, had our three oldest girls playing soccer this past fall, and uh, we enjoyed our time to go out there on the soccer field, and some of you were in the same league we were in, so you know what it was like to be out there, and spent a lot of our time just chasing our youngest daughter around the sidelines, but also watching our three oldest girls play soccer, and the last week came a few weeks ago, and in the last week of soccer, we told our girls, we're going to go out for pizza after the game, and they get to pick where we go to pizza. They decided they want to go to Bricks, right over here in Briar Creek in the parking lot. They like Bricks, not so much for the pizza, not that the pizza's bad, 
Uh, but when you go to Bricks, if you ask them for it, they'll give you pizza dough you can play with at the table. And so it's like silly putty right at the table while we wait. And so that's why they're like, we're going to Bricks. And so they have their soccer uniforms on, their cleats on. They're all excited. It's the last day. They're talking about friends and things that happen in games. They all got medals. And we're so soft as a culture. I mean, it didn't anything. You just got, everybody got a medal. And so that's what happens. And we're all, everybody's excited about that. And then we get to the restaurant. I don't know if you've ever taken little kids. We've got four of them, nine, seven, five, and three. And we got to the table. It's everything we could do to keep, no, you don't get a knife. Give me the knife. And here, here's the menu. And could we get some Play-Doh, pizza dough stuff over here and get out from underneath it. You know, all this stuff that happens if you've ever taken kids to a restaurant. So we're trying to do all that. Waiter comes. We order drinks, order pizza, get the pizza balls coming, all that stuff. And then my seven-year-old daughter looks over and says to me, Dad, did we pray for our waiter? And we didn't. And oftentimes what we try to do as a family, just a small way to try and connect people in our community to Jesus, is if we go out to eat, I'll say to the waiter or waitress, um, we're going to pray for our meal in a minute. Can we pray for you? Sometimes it opens a, a great conversation. Sometimes they go, nope, I'm good. So you never know what's going to happen. But I didn't do it that time. Just forgot the craziness of getting everybody situated, getting everybody in the right spot, and I was just going to blow it off. Until my nine-year-old daughter then looks at me. A somewhat pious look. And do you ever get somebody ask you a question and you know they know the answer before they ask the question? She's so condescending to me. She's nine. And so she looks at me and she's kind of got the finger tapped together. She's like, Dad, what is the mission of our church? Come on. Are you kidding me? I called the waiter up. Come over here. My daughter reminded me. We were going to pray for you. It's like, so, so not compassionate. I'm supposed to pray for you. So let's just do this. And so I bring the guy over and we start to talk and prayed for the guy. But it's not about the situation. It's a lot like this topic. Talk about the topic of homosexuality today. People that are same-sex attracted in the LGBT community, lesbian, gay, bisexual, transgender, and oftentimes the way the conversation is pitted is there are two sides, and one side has to decide who's right and who's wrong, put everybody in their categories, get everybody situated in the right spots. It's a confusing, complicated situation. And then you've got people, too, that don't want to say anything, going under the table, you've got people that are happening, all kinds of stuff that's taking place, and you can easily forget what this is really all about. And so today, as we get started, I just want to ask the question my daughter asked me. What's the mission of our church? It's to connect people. It's not to decide who's right and wrong. It's so that people would be redeemed. To connect people to Jesus Christ so they would experience life change. That happens only by the power of the Holy Spirit, not by what we do. And it all happens for the glory of God. And that's the goal. Believers, non-believers, heterosexual, those who struggle with same-sex attraction, those who are in same-sex sexual relationships, those who are greedy, those who overeat, those who lie, all of them to Jesus Christ so that their lives would be changed. And we talk about this topic of homosexuality, and it's very complicated because it's about more than just what's right, what's wrong, what's the Bible say, but where's a verse, give me a verse, show me a verse, and then show me another verse, and then we kind of counter and go back and forth and all that. It's more than that. Because we're talking about people and our times are changing. I'm 38 years old, which I don't think is very old. Some people think it's old. Everybody who's 37 and younger think it's old. And uh, it's different than when I was 28 in our culture. It's different than when I was 18. It's different than when I was a little kid. I remember when I was a little kid, Madonna sang a song, Like a Virgin, Touch for the Very First Time. She said virgin on the radio. That's not surprising or shocking now. <laughs> times have changed. We live in a time where I can remember, it didn't seem like it was that long ago, two women kissing on stage at an award show was all over the news. Now, you can see that at the park when you go on a walk with your kids. We live in a time, I've got a nine-year-old to a three-year-old and two kids in between. They will be the first generation that grows up where their friends have two moms and they're married to each other, and that's normal. It's not shocking. Those are the norms we live in. And so is it all just Okay. We've got Bible verses that say otherwise, and so then you get questions, and the questions you wrote in were things like this. Can I, first person, by the way, can I be in a same-sex relationship and be a Christian? Is it wrong? Was the underlying question to every question that had to do with the topic of homosexuality. One person wrote, are the sins mentioned in the Bible still relevant for today? And then in parentheses, they said homosexuality. And so I realized you have questions. And there's a battle that's taking place in the hearts of many over whether I've got these desires and if God made me this way, then shouldn't I be able to do these things? And so I realize all this is happening. So there's some of you that's in a struggle when you be on your radar to be a struggle personally, but you know it's a topic. And then some of you, it's incredibly personal. And at the heart of all of the questions is, it, well, is it wrong? And to be as candid as I can be with you, we actually talked about this two weeks ago 
I never mentioned the word homosexuality. I never said LGBT. Never talked about uh, gay. Never talked talk same-sex attractions, same-sex uh, re sexual relationships. Never said any of that stuff. But we talked about sexuality two weeks ago. We talked about God's plan for sexuality, that God has given us a gift in sex. It's a good gift. It's only meant to be used in one context, though, in the context that he designed. One person asked a question when they wrote in about this topic. Why does God get to define who marriage is for? Well, God designed marriage. It was his plan. He's got a patent on it. He put a plan in processes that happened his way. Now, a lot of times what we see in culture, we're not really demonstrating marriage anyways, but what he demonstrated in the Bible was his plan for marriage and what's supposed to take place. In Genesis chapter 1, he said, we created the male and female, he said, be fruitful and multiply. First command in the Bible. And so what you could get in a message on homosexuality is that I could come rail against how, you know, uh, people that are in same-sex relationships are ruining family structures, it's destroying America, the average person in this kind of relationship has this many partners, and here's how bad it is, and here's why it's ruining everything. And some people be like, that's right, that's right. And um, then what happens is you meet your friends, neighbors, somebody at the coffee shop at your office, Joe and Steve that have been in a relationship with each other for 20 years and they're monogamous with one another and they're loving people and they do lots of nice stuff in the community. And you think, well, that didn't fit what the guy up front was talking about. So is that okay? Well, the Bible just finds for us what's supposed to be okay in Genesis chapter 2 verse 24. It's the definition of marriage. God gives it to us from the very beginning. He created the male and female, and he said, for this reason. So there's a reason for marriage. In fact, in Genesis chapter 1 and chapter 2, we see seven purposes for marriage. Pastor Jason, our shepherding pastor, is going to preach next week on marriage. If you're married, been married, think about ever being married, it'll be a great message for you. And the seven purposes of marriage are laid out through there. And he says here, a man will leave his father and mother. So they'll become uh, a new family unit. They're going to leave their father and mother, which is interesting that it was said to Adam because Adam didn't have a father and mother. This is a precedent being set for all of time. This is God's plan for marriage, which we see a picture of all throughout the Bible from Genesis 1 and 2 to Revelation 21 and 22. And it's never a same-sex relationship. It's a bride, a bridegroom. Every time. A man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and they will become one flesh. That's sex in Genesis. That was God's plan for sex to happen in that context. So then let me say this. Anything other than that is sin. Which means anything that's not a heterosexual, one man, one woman, covenant relationship in a marriage, non-incestuous, for the purpose of procreation, for the purpose of demonstrating the gospel and God's faithful love. Do you see Ephesians 5? see Matthew 19? Talk about more next week. Anything that's not that is not God's plan, which means this. Two teenagers in the backseat of a car, opposite sex with one another, not God's plan. Two dudes, not God's plan. Two 50-year-olds, one's been married before, one uh, is widowed, and the other one's divorced. Oh, I've had different, weird, different rules applied. To, nope, that's not God's plan. All of that is sin. doesn't matter what combination, how you put it together, how old people are. doesn't matter the stage of life. doesn't matter if... It's not Genesis 2.24. That's not God's plan, and that is sin. Seems like a simple message, right? All done. But Dad, what is the mission of our church? And so now we still have people say, okay, I agree with that. Um, we're done, right? No, it's messy because now how do you interact with those who don't agree with that? How do you interact with those who are trapped in sexual struggles? How do you interact with those who are trapped in sexual sin? And then there are those of you who are in sexual sin. There are those of you who are struggling with this. I would refer you back some to the message we did on besetting sin, but also, what does Jesus have to say directly to you today? And how do you interact with those who are trapped in sexual sin? How do you interact with those who are struggling and tempted, haven't sinned, but they're there? And we're going to look at a passage today in John chapter 8. If you have your Bibles, I invite you to join me. John chapter 8, we're going to read verses 1 through 11. And what happens is there's a woman who's caught in sexual sin is brought to Jesus. And the reason why she's brought to Jesus is very interesting because they want to trap Jesus. It's not about the woman. And so we're going to look at how Jesus responds here. And what's going on is a lot like the debate, the conversation that's pictured in the media today or in pop songs today, that you have to choose a side. It's one thing or the other. And I read an article this week that said in the conversation about homosexuality, 
there are two opinions. One is on the right side, and it's oftentimes called the religious right, when the word homosexual, LGBT community, any of that kind of stuff gets brought up, there are those whose faces turn red and they want to get, you know, puff their chest out and yell about what's right and what's wrong. And then on the left side, oftentimes called liberal, are those who have compassion, are those who see an opportunity for progress, are those who want tolerance. And you have to pick a side. Are you going to pick conviction or compassion? Are you going to pick truth or are you going to pick grace? And who's against love? And that's the way that it's pictured and painted. What we see with Jesus is Jesus gives us a third way. He gives an option that you will not see portrayed in the media. And we see it in this passage of scripture. And what's happening here is that Jesus is teaching in the temple courts. There's a festival taking place, so there's a lot of people around, the Feast of Tabernacles, and he's teaching. It says that he goes and he sits down in the temple courts, and people gather around, and so he had no microphone. People would get in as close as they could, and while he's doing this, there are a group of religious leaders that bring in a woman who's half naked and say, this woman was caught in the very act of adultery. What are you going to do? And here's the trap for Jesus. The question is, are you going to, because we know you're a friend of sinners, we know for some reason that sinners want to be around you, but you teach the Bible. And so which one are you going to pick? Are you going to pick the Bible because the law of Moses says she must be stoned? Or are you going to pick to be friend of sinners and be gracious and compassionate like you've been so many other times? And what Jesus shows us is you don't have to pick between the two. There's a third way. Look at it with me. John chapter 8, verses 1 through 11. But Jesus went to the Mount of Olives. At dawn, he appeared again in the temple courts where all the people gathered around him. So there were a lot of people there. And he sat down to teach them. Because he's going to teach for a long time. So he's sitting down. So we've got a good sign already. I'm standing up. The teachers of the law and the Pharisees brought in a woman. So these religious leaders, they brought in a woman. These are the guardians of the truth. They brought in a woman caught in adultery. They made her stand before the group and said to Jesus, Teacher, this woman was caught in the act of adultery. Some of your translators say the very act of adultery. The law had it stated. You couldn't do this on suspicion. You had to actually see the person doing the deed. In the law of Moses, Moses commanded us to stone such women. That is true. Now, what do you say, Jesus? We want to know what you have to say about this. They call you rabbi. They call you teacher. Are you going to violate the law of Moses? Or are you going to show everybody that uh, you're not such a friend of sinners? Are you going to demonstrate to them? And then we can go to Rome because the Jews aren't actually allowed to kill anybody, and we can get you killed. And so we think we have you trapped here, Jesus. Either way you decide, we think we have you. They're questioning Jesus as a trap, verse 6 in order to have a basis for accusing him. But Jesus bent down and started to write on the ground with his finger. <laughs> I wouldn't even thought of that as an option. <laughs> He's writing on the ground. What in the world? And when they kept on questioning him, he straightened up and said to them, if any one of you is without sin, let him be the first to throw a stone at her. And again, he stooped down and wrote on the ground. <laughs> you wouldn't deal with that for a little while, guys. At this, those who heard began to go away one at a time, the older ones first, until only Jesus was left with the woman still standing there. Jesus straightened up and asked her, woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? The first time in the passage that she speaks, no one, sir, she said. Then neither do I condemn you, Jesus declared. Go now and leave your life of sin. Here we have Jesus the picture of both compassion and conviction without compromise. He is, John chapter 1, verse 14, the embodiment, the incarnation of grace and truth. We see him being here incredibly bold with grace in the way that he interacts with this woman and how he interacts with these men. But he doesn't deny the truth. He doesn't neglect conviction. He says to her, I don't condemn you. Go and sin no more. What you're do it's not, hey, that's okay, lady, no big deal. Just try to not let everybody know about that. Stop doing this. Go and sin no more, but I don't condemn you. The condemnation is, is the fuel, and the lack of condemnation is the fuel for her to live the life of obedience. He says to the men, he confronts their sin. Any of you is without sin? No, you all have sin. He doesn't have any sin. He's the only one that's actually able to judge in these matters, to judge accurately, that's competent to do these things, as a picture of both grace and truth, of compassion and conviction. And what we see here is if we're going to interact with this, this topic of homosexuality, this sin struggle that we have personally, those that we love, that we come into contact with, that will just say, this is, it's okay, it's how God made me. We must be bold with grace and generous with truth. First, we must be bold with grace. 
That's what we see Jesus doing here. This woman is getting something she doesn't deserve. That's what grace is, when we get what we don't deserve. She deserves to be stoned. The Bible clearly says that. She was caught. This is an open and shut case. She was caught in adultery. There's not much to be debated here. In fact, Jesus could have said, why are you bringing her to me? You've already got this all figured out. But he knew what was going on. He knew what was happening in the hearts. And Jesus doesn't condemn this woman. Because that's not why Jesus came to this earth. Some people ask the question, does God love gays and lesbians? That was one of the questions that was written in to us as a church. Well, John 3.16, one of the most famous verses in the Bible, answers that question. For God so loved the world. That's everybody. That's people with heterosexual sin. That's gays. That's same-sex attracted. That's people who overeat. That's people who are lazy. That's people that he lo- God loves. He never made a person he doesn't love. But we oftentimes let John 3.16 overshadow John 3.17. Do you know John 3.17? For God so loved the world, he gave his only son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have everlasting life. And then verse 17, for God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world. What's our mission? To rescue so you can save that which was lost. Save the world through him. And that has to happen by being bold through grace. Why is it that sinners are attracted to Jesus? He never sins. It's not like he's one of them. He's tempted in every way, just as we're tempted. But you see sinners and prostitutes and tax collectors and shepherds that weren't allowed to go to the temple because they were thought of as unclean. All these people coming around Jesus. And one of my favorite passages in the New Testament is Mark chapter 2, where there's this man lowered before Jesus he can't walk, and Jesus doesn't heal his legs right away. He says, your sins are forgiven. He deals with his real problem. And then people start to think, who's this guy? He can't forgive sins. Jesus says, well, so that you know that I can do that. Get up and walk. And the guy gets up and he walks out. Then Jesus calls a tax collector to come and be one of his 12 disciples. His name's Matthew. Then he has a party at Matthew's house, and he's hanging out with all of Matthew and his friends, which would be prostitutes, other tax collectors, all these sinners, and the religious people come in and say, what's he doing? He's a rabbi. He teaches at the temple, and he's with these people? Why do these people want to be with him, is a question. He doesn't condone their behavior ever, and he doesn't do their behavior. They're drawn to him. He's bold with grace. What Jesus does is he comes out next. And he starts talking to the religious guys. We don't know if the people that are the sinners in this passage ever hear these words. He says to them, I didn't come for the righteous. I came for sinners. A doctor doesn't come to heal healthy people. He comes to heal sick people. So as a doctor, the great physician, he's around sick people all the time. Sick people want to be around him because they realize they need help. And you look at this passage of scripture and the way that he interacts with the men and the woman in this passage. And think to yourself, who do you identify with in this passage? Here's Jesus. He's sitting down. He's teaching in the temple. The crowd's gathered around. They want to hear. He's probably teaching about being the light of the world, which he'll later talk about in John chapter 8. He's probably talking about how he's the savior that is to come. Maybe he opens up Isaiah. And he's talking to a, a primarily Jewish audience here. He's telling them, I'm the one that's been promised. Do you see the one that's going to suffer? I came to lay my life down. As he's doing that, a half-naked woman's brought in by a group of people. Tell me that wouldn't, you'd always remember that day at the temple, wouldn't you? Sex scandal, like they didn't have tabloids, they didn't have, you know, all the different magazines that are out there, people, us, whatever, they didn't have that stuff. But here it is, it's happening. Scandal, right in front of them. And then they put Jesus on the spot. Jesus starts writing in the sand. He was without sin. You, you cast the first stone. Who do I identify with there? Jesus, the woman, the man? It'd be easy to identify with the woman because we've all been humiliated before in some regard. And we all feel the weight of our own sin. We're all sinners. Maybe you've never been in that situation, hopefully. It'd be easy to talk about her. What about, what about maybe the husband is one of the ones that's accusing her? How mad he must be at that moment that his wife cheated on him. Who are these men? So if I'm honest, when I look at the passage of Scripture... Who it is that we as Christians would be identified as are the accusers, not Jesus. And here's why. They want what's right. If you ask them the question, they say, we're the guardians of the truth. This guy's soft on sin. We're going to put him on the spot and make him make a decision. So everybody can ex- we can expose him for the fraud that he is. And you know what's really happening is he's making their life uncomfortable, which is really what most of us want. We want to stay comfortable. And that's why we get upset about it. Let's be honest. Why do we get upset? Some of us are excited to hear that I'll be preaching on homosexuality. And here's why. You're excited about it because you want to hear me say something like it's an abomination because it's not your sin. Do you want to know if your being upset about sin in our culture is a really righteous indignation? 
Or is it self-righteousness? Then do you get upset when we talk about your sin? What if today I were preaching on tithing? (laughs) That'll empty the church. Statistics say 98% of Christians do not tithe. So what if I got up and I'm reading from Malachi and I'm saying, you're robbing God. You're stealing from God. If you're not giving 10% off the top to the church, you don't get to have a say in how it goes and where it goes and divide it all up. It's not you. You're acknowledging that it's God's money and do that. You know, most people be like, man, this guy, all he wants is my money. And you justify, you rationalize, it makes you uncomfortable. You don't want to deal with that. But if you talk about homosexuality and you don't struggle with same-sex attraction, you're ready. Pop out your collar, pop out your chest. That's right. Amen. That is an abomination. We should be disgusted at our hypocrisy. It's not bold with grace. It's self-righteousness. That's what Jesus is confronting in these men in this passage. They don't care about this woman. She's objectified in the passage. She's not even a person. Her name's not used once. She's never addressed. Jesus, we're trapping you based on the topic of this woman. What's the mission of our church? Get people to behave the right way. Get people to behavior modified. See, the reality is that some of us would be real candid. We'd be happy if we could get the votes to line up the right way. If we can get everybody to say that they agree, we don't care what's going on in their hearts or in their minds or in their lives or in their bedrooms. Here's what we care about. Act like me, say you think like me, look like me, so I can be comfortable. And what most of us are really against isn't sin, it's discomfort. I was talking with a leader in the gay community becoming friends with, and uh, we were chatting through uh, just how we are perceived by the gay community. Uh, last week we are having lunch and he's telling me story after story of uh, people that have reached out to him and talked to him about things that have happened in churches, bad stories, most of them. He's written a book, a first story in his book. He shares about a woman who called him up and uh, she was frantic. Found out her 15-year-old son said he was gay and they were trying to figure out, read all the right Bible verses to him and tell him all the right stuff and try and get it to, to, to fix him. And it wasn't working, so they didn't know what to do. And so they called this guy up and started to talk about all the fears they had. The greatest fears were not that he's going to get AIDS someday. The greatest fear wasn't that he's never going to be a lot of kids. The greatest fear was, what if their church finds out? In 2007, George Barna did a study. And he asked 16 to 29-year-olds to choose words to describe present-day Christianity. Among those were positive words like good morals, offers hope. There were some negatives like hypocritical, judgmental. Out of all of the choices, the most popular was anti-homosexual. 91% of non-Christians described the church this way. 80% of Christians did. In the book Unchristian, Gabe Lyons, Dave Kitteman wrote a book off of Barnes' research, and they said this, in our research, the perception that Christians are against gays and lesbians has reached critical mass. The gay issue has become the big one. The negative image most likely to be intertwined with Christianity's reputation. Outsiders say our hostility towards gays, not just opposition to homosexual politics and behaviors, but disdain for gay individuals, has become virtually synonymous with the Christian faith. That's how we're known. And they will know we are Christians by our hate. Isn't that what the Bible says? Do you know the verse in Romans that talks about what leads to repentance. Do you know what it is that leads to repentance? Romans chapter 2, verse 4. Or do you, not, do you show contempt for the riches of his kindness? It's talking about God's grace. Tolerance and patience. Not realizing that God's kindness leads you toward repentance. Why is it they wanted to be around Jesus? What is the mission of our church? God's continually bold with grace. Why are sinners, any sinners, attracted to God? Well, Adam and Eve, they didn't die in the garden. He was gracious. Noah, not because Noah's so awesome, you get to survive the flood. I'm going to wipe everything out and I'm going to let you, because God's grace in that situation. David, caught in sin with Bathsheba, God's so gracious, he lets him, let his heart get hardened, choose his own way. That's part of God's wrath, by the way. But he's so gracious to send a friend, Nathan. So gracious that when David repents, he lets him live. Luke chapter 15, story of the prodigal son. It's a picture of our heavenly father. The son goes off, wastes his life on sexual immorality, spending all of his dad's money. He decides he's going to go home, and his father runs to him. It's a picture of God's grace. What is it with Peter? Peter denies Jesus when Jesus is being nailed to the cross. And then you read John chapter 21. 
And Jesus doesn't say, get out of here, man. I need somebody who can handle the pressure. He says, go feed my sheep. Now you know what it is to fail. And I give second chances. See, if anybody should be bold with grace, it should be us as Christians, because that's our mantra. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 8. We're saved by grace. That's we get what we don't deserve. By, through faith, we place our faith in one who did all the work for us, not of our works, not because we behavior modified enough so that we could be acceptable, or else we could brag about what we've done. And so then we're the ones that hear Romans 8, verse 1. There's no condemnation for those who are in Christ because of what Christ did, not because of what we did. It's by grace. When we were enemies of God, we were fighting against him. He sent his son Jesus to lay his life down for us and die for us. That's grace. So then we could receive the riches of Christ. We could receive a new identity in Christ. Our identity is not what we do. It's that we're in Christ. That's all by grace. So we should be the most gracious people in the world. Tim Keller says that the church should look like a doctor's office waiting room more than it looks like a job interview waiting room. Think about the differences. When you're interviewing for a job, you try to hide all your weaknesses. You put the best foot forward. And how often is church that way? But what church should be like is what happens in a hospital room waiting room or a doctor's office waiting room is you know everybody's there to get help. You don't just go hang out in a hospital waiting room. okay? And if you do, that's weird. Like No one does that. You, you go to a hospital waiting room because you're sick. You need a doctor. That's what church should be like, is that we all recognize we're all here for the same reason. We all need help. And we know there's only one that can actually help us. His name is Jesus Christ. So we should be bold with grace. In fact, the church should be the safest place for someone who's in a same-sex sexual relationship or same-sex attracted to go. But instead, we're viewed as anti-homosexual. That's got to change. It changes one relationship at a time. I remember uh, pastoring this church now for about eight years. The first time I uh, really confronted with this topic was with a person. I preached a message. The church was new. And uh, we had just transitioned to two services. I actually remember the series. We just started that series that day. And a young woman had come to the service and out in the lobby afterwards came up to me and said, uh, Pastor, I want to ask you a question. And I could tell she was moved by the service. She had tears in her eyes. Her eyes were red. And uh, I said, sure. And she said, can I go to church here? Which I thought was a weird question because she had already attended the service. So I'm already kind of like, all right, where's this going? Like as we're having this conversation, we're standing right out between Theater 9 and Theater 14. And then God so graciously had her position me. She actually turned in a way where she was going to say something to me. She didn't want anyone else to hear it. And uh, when I turned, I was facing the lobby and she said, I'm gay. Right as she said that, I saw this guy who I knew was a recovering alcoholic walk right behind her. What was I going to say to her? You can't go to church here. He can. You can't. I can. You can't. We're all sick people. We're all in need. To be bold with grace. But I didn't stop there in my conversation with her. You've got to be also generous with truth. This is what Jesus does in this passage. I said, you know, God's got more for you than that. He's got a better plan. I didn't pull out abomination passages at that moment. But I did talk about Jesus. What Jesus shows us is we've got to also be generous with truth. Not only are we bold with grace, we've got to be generous with truth. And think about how he does it in this passage with not only this woman, but with these men. These men come, and he's not going to just let them continue in their sin of self-righteousness and pride. And so what Jesus does, they come to him, they think they've got him trapped. They think if he says that we should stone her, we're going to Rome, and we're telling him that he's saying capital punishment's okay for Jews to do, and they're going to kill Jesus. If he says that we shouldn't, then we know that he's soft on the law and see he doesn't really teach the truth anyways. He's not a legitimate rabbi. He's a false teacher. So they think they've got him. Verse 6, he kneels down in the sand. He starts to write in verse 7. And then verse 8 says, after he said to them, if any one of you is without sin, let him be the first to throw a stone at her. Again, he stooped down and wrote on the ground. What's he doing here? He's not just being gracious to this woman. He's being incredibly gracious to these men as he confronts them with the truth. Hey, let's, we're talking about a topic here. Let's talk about your hearts. Are any of you without sin? He confronts their self-righteousness. He doesn't want to leave them in that. Then he stoops down. He begins to write in the sand again. 
At this, those who heard began. The word began is very interesting here. It's in the uh, imperfect tense. So they began to go away one at a time. That means it was continuous. That means one guy dropped a stone, walked off, and then the second, and then the third. And it says, the older ones first, which I think is also interesting. Why the older ones first? Is it because they were more sensitive to their sin? They were more mature maybe? Or maybe it's because they had more sin, because they had been around longer. I don't know. John doesn't tell us. Until only Jesus was left, which is very interesting, because remember, it wasn't just the accusers and Jesus. There was a whole crowd of people there that were there to listen to Jesus teach. But apparently when Jesus gave this teaching, they all left too. So the old guys start walking off, then the young guys start walking off, and then apparently the crowd left. And now it's just Jesus and this woman. Verse 10. Jesus straightened up and asked her, Woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? No one, sir, she said. And these words are amazing. These are words that every person who's decided to follow Jesus have heard. Then neither do I condemn you. There's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And Jesus says here, I don't condemn you. John 3, 17, he didn't come to condemn the world. He came to save the world. And then Jesus declared words we oftentimes neglect at the last part of the verse, go now and leave your life of sin. What's our message to those in the same-sex community? Is it no, wrong, Genesis 2, Leviticus, Romans, 1 Corinthians, for Timothy? Or is it the same message we have for every sinner? There's no condemnation. Now, Transformation. Notice the order here in which Jesus says these things. Then neither do I condemn you, Jesus declared. Go now, leave your life of sin. Most of us would say that the other way. Go leave your life of sin, then we won't condemn you. And most of us, if we're candid, when we talk to someone, if we are not the ones struggling with same-sex attraction, and we're talking with someone who's in a same-sex relationship or struggles with same-sex attraction, we think, well, just if we could get them to church, then maybe we could hook them up with somebody from the opposite sex, or if we just found somebody attractive enough, or we just, well, then we could fix them. And then we'd all be okay. That's really about your comfort, by the way. That's not about them. What Jesus is saying here is, there's no condemnation. I'm offering you forgiveness. This is the gospel message that Jesus is giving her. There's condemnation. It's going to be put on Jesus on the cross. What he's saying here is, I'm offering you forgiveness. This is the message. It's not come get fixed. Hey, we'll hook you up. It's No, here's the message. Jesus. Jesus offers hope. Jesus offers deliverance. Jesus offers another chance. There is now no condemnation. That is the fuel to then now go leave your life of sin, which doesn't necessarily mean get married. It's not for the person in the same-sex relationship or same-sex attracted. You're not trying to hook them up with someone else any more than you are any single in our church or some other person that decided they're not looking to get married. They want to know Jesus more. And so our message is a message of hope. That's the truth. That's what we give. And it comes from the forgiveness, the lack of condemnation, and then now you can live for Jesus. So some people ask the question, so are you saying that you can be uh, in a same-sex relationship and be a Christian? Here's the first statement I say back to you. Does being heterosexual get you to heaven? So then being homosexual doesn't send you to hell. What do you think about that? What we have here is we're talking about a sin, for sure. But what Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 6 is that it does. So let's get attention here. 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 9 through 11, we'll read, Do you not know that the wicked will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived, neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, that's heterosexual sexually immoral, the first one, by the way, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor malprostitutes, nor homosexual offenders, nor thieves, the greedy, those who don't tithe, nor drunkards, nor slanderers, nor swindlers, one inherit the kingdom of God. You know what this means? No one's got a shot. It is impossible for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God unless unless you repent, unless you turn to Jesus. And then we all got a shot because of what he did. So the reality is this. Yes, if you are in unrepentant sin and you continue in unrepentant sin, you're on your way to hell. Greedy, liars, slanderers, 
same-sex sexual relationships, yes, that is hell-bound. If you turn to Christ, and then you fight sin, because that's the Christian life, see the besetting sin message, you fight sin, that's a sign you're probably on your way to heaven. Look what Paul says next, verse 11. He says, and that is what some of you were, talking to the Corinthians. That's who you were, thieves, male prostitutes, homosexual offenders, and that's what some of you were, so there's a difference. That's past tense. That's not who you are. That's who you were. But what happened? You turned to Christ. You were washed. You were sanctified. You were justified in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. God changes people. He changes lives. If he doesn't, we could stop meeting as a church. If you just, oh, no, no, no. You know, once you're male and attracted to another male, you're always attracted to another male, and that's who you are. Don't, don't use that language, please. It's not your identity. Your behavior is not your identity. Well, so then once you're greedy, that's just who you are. You're always greedy. Once you're a liar, you're always a liar. Once you're... Well, Jesus changes people's lives. That's what we're seeing happen here in John chapter 8. It's what we see happen throughout the gospel. It's what we've seen happen in our own stories, Lord willing, for most of us. He does change people. Does that mean you won't struggle for your whole life? No, no, no. We all can talk about a struggle. We all have struggles. But we repent and we realize it's a battle. So we've got a problem, we've got a danger situation when we start saying that everything's okay. We start saying that your sin is not a big deal. Now we've got, that's a sign you're not on your way to heaven. That's a sign that you are on your path to hell. And so that's difficult. That's a problem. Do you know why? Because if someone's on their way to hell and then we say that it's okay, how much do we hate that person? Because the argument that we'll get in the media is this. If you tell someone they're a sinner, you hate them. You're against them. No, how much do you, how unloving is it if you know someone's on their way to hell, they're on a path that leads to destruction, they might not even know it, and we don't say anything. So you plead with them, you beg them, you try to convince them, you try to demonstrate to them, you try to show them. That's being generous with truth. That is loving. That's where compassion and conviction come together. It's not just bold with grace, it's not just generous with truth, it's got to be and. Both things have to happen simultaneously. And popular pastor's wife recently said, well, who am I to speak about someone else's life? Who am I to tell someone else how to live? It's their journey. Oh, that is so partially true. Like most lies. Who am I? In and of myself, I've got no authority. I'm just another sinner. I'm a beggar looking for bread. Talking to other beggars looking for bread. I am the one in the doctor's office. I am not the physician. I shouldn't be saying anything. That is so true. Except, what is the mission of our church, Dad? Uh, we are supposed to connect people to Jesus for life change because we are his ambassadors. And he has actually said something about this. So since he said something about it, we speak on behalf of him. Not just because I'm up front as a preacher. All of us as Christians are his ambassadors and we speak on behalf of God. That's his plan for reaching this world. That's how the mission of the church happens. And so we have something to say. Something we have to say is, there's no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. Come to Christ. Now go sin no more. Stop sinning. You need Jesus because of sin. And now stop sinning. We offer hope. That's our message. What about uh, lots of verses that get debated? Because there's uh, not only uh, is there side A, side B, not only is there a conviction, compassion argument in the media, but if you start to read about these things, you'll find out there's also a contingent of people that will take the Bible and try and say that the Bible actually says it's okay to be gay and a Christian. It's okay to have not only same-sex attraction, but be involved in sexual relationships, man-man, woman-woman, and the Bible actually says it's okay. In fact, there's a book that was written recently by a guy named Matthew Vines, Harvard student, who wrote a book, um, talked about being a gay Christian. And in your small group study this week, you received information about the passages he addresses there and how to correctly uh, interpret those passages. And so that was a tool, a book that was given to everybody. If you don't get that email, email our office. We'd love to give it to you. And what happens is, Vines comes and he says there are six, calls them clobber passages, the beat up um, gay passages that are in the Bible. Now, let me pause and say this. There are more than six. Okay, the very fact that he says that, um, he's already off. There are more than six passages, but he takes the six primary passages that are used and he talks about that. Now, that's not the only place where homosexuality is addressed in the Bible. It might be places where you specifically see the word and it's directly addressed, but what we see throughout the Bible, every time we see sexuality addressed, it's addressed in a way that would imply that same-sex relationship was never intended by God. Read Song of Solomon. 
Read Proverbs 5 that we went over a couple weeks ago. Genesis 1 and 2. Ephesians chapter 5. Jesus' own words in red letters. Because some people say, well, Jesus never addressed it. No, Jesus did address it. In Matthew chapter 19, Jesus addressed it. He said, God made them, male and female. And then he quotes Genesis 2.24. For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother, be united to his wife, and the two will become one. That's Jesus addressing it. Because he's saying, I, I believe what God's plan was. That's the plan. And then what Vines does is he takes passages like Genesis chapter 19 is one of the first passages he takes. It's the story of Sodom and Gomorrah. And he says the issue there is not sodomy. The issue there is inhospitality, is what he says. Um, the problem with that is the Bible actually interprets that passage of Scripture for us and makes it really clear in Jude. In Jude chapter 7, or Jude chapter 1, it's only one chapter in Jude, uh, verse 7, it says, in a similar way, Sodom and Gomorrah and the surrounding towns gave themselves up to sexual immorality and perversion. They serve as an example of those who suffer the punishment of eternal fire. Here's what I want to do for our body. It's actually not just about this topic of homosexuality. Um, how you handle scripture is incredibly important because you can pull passages of scripture out and make them say what you want them to say whenever you take them out of context. That's why for eight years and preaching here, I always try to say in the context of this passage is, and the context of this passage is, and which is what's happening here in this passage, I just want to teach you how to use the Bible yourself. You don't read the Bible through your experiences. You read your experiences through the Bible. And that's what ends up happening in Vine's book. What Vine's does is he says, is very deceptive actually. He says, I am a Christian and I believe that God's word is authoritative and I'm not a scholar but I'm leaning on other scholars. He's honest. He, he believes that he's a Christian. He's a professed his faith in Christ. And uh, he believes that the Bible is authoritative. The problem is, here's how he's deceptive, because all lies we live by, if you remember that series, all good lies have enough truth in them to be deceptive. He doesn't tell you that the scholars he leans on don't believe the Bible is authoritative, and they don't believe that it's God's word. And so then he takes passages, rips them out of context, filters them through his experience, reinterprets them, redefines words, and says all these things. And so you can't do that with the Bible. The corn, there's lots of passages we could go to. 1 Corinthians 6, 1 Timothy passage, there's two passages in Leviticus. Leviticus passages say this, do not lie with a man as one lies with a woman. That is detestable. If a man lies with a man as one lies with a woman, both of them have been, uh, both of what has been done is detestable. I say, well, that's in Leviticus. Like, we don't count anything. That's not true. That's another interpretation of the Bible uh, issue we talk through. These are moral laws that are being talked about here, not ceremonial laws that are being talked about here. But the passage is uh, Romans chapter 1. And I'm not saying you take this out and, and you bring this before your friend who's in a same-sex relationship or struggling with same-sex attraction as the, see how wrong this is? But as a Christian, I want you to know this is how you read the Bible. What does it say? You don't know Greek, Hebrew, that's fine. What does it just say? It's clear, Romans chapter 1, verses 26 and 27. Because of this, God gave them over to shameful lusts. Because um, what Romans chapter 1, you want the full context, start in verse 18, and it talks about we suppress the truth of God. God's revealed himself. Pastor Jad mentioned this last week when he was talking about how God reveals himself through creation. And what has happening here is Paul's using language that's very similar to Genesis chapter 1, Genesis chapter 2. He's being intentional to connect with creation order and God's intention. It says, because of this, God gave them over to shameful lust because they suppressed the truth. Even their women exchanged natural relations for unnatural ones. In the same way, men also abandoned their natural relations with women and were inflamed with lust for one another. Men committed indecent acts with other men and received in themselves the due penalty of their perversion. Now, to be fair, um, what those who will give what's called pro-gay theology, not because it implies that the other is anti-gay theology, which isn't true, um, is that it's natural as a man for me to be attracted to these. This is how I was made, and so I'm naturally attracted. That's not what's being said here. What's the way that God designed things for us to be together and the two will become one. That's what's being talked about from Genesis chapter 2 here. And, and here's the scary part for me as I think about pastoring a group of people that read the Bible on their own, study the Bible on their own, but they're also bombarded by all these messages. Um, verse 32, Romans chapter 1. Although they know God's righteous decree that those who do such things deserve death, they not only continue to do these very things, but they also approve of those who practice them. It gets so bad that we'd actually say that this is okay. And this is what's happening in a culture that Paul's addressing here when he writes to the Romans. And this is what's happening with us. But then the compelling argument becomes, but, but if you love somebody and that's what they want, you give people what they want. If, they, if you love someone, you give them what they want. 
But the reality is, that's not what Jesus teaches us. You want to save your life, you lose your life, deny yourself. I want to read to you from a book I read. It's one of the ones I recommended in the study this week. Sam Albury is the author. He is a pastor in the UK who says he's very careful to not call himself gay because he believes that if he calls himself gay, he's implying that he's actively involved in sexual relationships with other men. He says he's not. But he admits that he's same-sex attracted, that he is attracted to men. And he says, but I don't want to be known that way because that's not how I'm defined. That is not my identity. He says, I also happen to eat meat in this chapter. He says, but I don't introduce myself as a carnivore when I'm talking to someone because it's not the primary way through which you should know me because of my desires, my attractions. He says this, I prefer to talk in terms of uh, being someone who experiences homosexual feelings or same-sex attraction. And as someone in this situation, what Jesus calls me to do is exactly what he calls anyone to do. Take another well-known saying of Jesus. Then he called the crowd to him along with his disciples and said, whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. That's whoever. Heterosexual, same-sex attracted. It is the same for all of us, whoever, Alberry goes on to say, I am to deny myself, take up my cross and follow him. Every Christian is called to costly sacrifice. Denying yourself does not mean tweaking your behavior here and there. It is saying no to your deepest sense of who you are for the sake of Christ. To take up a cross is to declare your life forfeit. It's laying down your life for the very reason that your life, it turns out, is not yours at all. It belongs to Jesus. He made it, and through his death, he bought it. Is it unloving to tell someone to deny themselves? It's the very call of every Christian, and here's why we have a hard time with it, because we don't do it either, because we want comfort. It's an opportunity, if we take the Jesus way, the third way, to be countercultural. You don't pick conviction or compassion. You don't pick grace or truth. It's grace and truth. It's conviction and compassion. And it's a message of hope and the gospel. I read a quote by Kevin DeYoung this week that I thought was convicting. I'll share this with you as we conclude. Kevin DeYoung says, if we aren't prepared to be countercultural, we aren't ready to be Christians. Dad, what's the mission of our church? We pray. Father, I pray that those of us who have your spirit indwelling us would be like your son, Jesus. I pray that those of us who are in sin would be convicted today and that our anger, our righteous indignation would be towards our own sin and that separates us from you. And I pray we would be people that would race to repentance. We'd be continually repenting. I pray that we would devour your truth, be people of the word, and that we would call out like Ezekiel to those with dry bones, with dead bones, people that are dead, that there's a message of life, a resurrection and happen, that change is available, and that we would connect people to your son Jesus, and their lives would be changed. Being both bold with grace and generous with truth. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.